0: What do you think that young men need just based on what you've seen? What are they hungry for? Well, I don't know what they're hungry for, but maybe I can talk about what they need. (laughs) Okay. So those two might not be the same.
1: (laughs) They might not be. Okay. (laughs) This this probably wouldn't be too interesting for (laughs) the hearers right now.
0: No, but we'll get interesting. Okay. Well, Dr. Padelford, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, it's my privilege to be here. (laughs) So our last episode um, that I did was with Patrick Beard, and uh, your name came up in the conversation, and I was telling him about how I wanted to have you on, so I really appreciate it. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks a lot. (laughs) So uh, one question that I wanted to ask, and this seems like as good a place to start as any, um, I am fascinated by people who don't slow down in retirement (laughs) and you're one of those people uh i mean you're doing a lot of international travel uh speaking and teaching so i guess i guess it's kind of a two part question one have you always been this way and two like where does your energy come from
1: well i think question number one uh no i have not always been this way okay um I think part of what I'm doing now, uh, comes basically from my vocation or the vocation that Christ has given me. Uh huh. And, uh, I mean, I wasn't always aware of that vocation or, uh, really what Christ might want to do with me. Um, I, I have been a Christian a long time. I I, I believed in the Lord when I was a lad of of some such age. But I really didn't get, um, you might say, more serious about following Christ until I was about a, let's say, 26-year-old man. So I'd been married for a while. Uh, I was in graduate school at Louisiana State University and uh studying economics but i was also studying philosophy okay and uh i went to a philosopher's party one christmas holiday night and i was excited about being around some of the big philosophers and uh, you know really pursuing the truth and so on but um when i got there i pretty much found out that it was just sort of a drunken brawl and uh It wasn't that I was shocked. It was more like I was disappointed. Like, you know, we've got these guys around here who supposedly know something. I mean, why don't we talk about some stuff? And this was in the philosophy school or the economics? This was in the philosophy school. I was taking a minor in philosophy uh, also. But um, I knew that the truth was contained in Scripture. So at that point... I'd say I was about 26. I was married, my wife and I. Katie mm-hmm. and I were living there in married student housing. I began to read my Bible every day. And um, as happens, when you begin to take Scripture in, your life begins to change. So that was kind of the beginning, I would say, of, of my vocation. Um, mm-hmm. And th- there's more, a lot more to it. I mean, things go on and on. But um, anyway... Uh, That's part of why I do what I do.
0: Okay. So it's been kind of a journey of discovery for you in a way.
1: It's absolutely been a journey of discovery. Um, As I began to uh, read scripture as a young man, uh, older than you now when I got started, uh, um, my wife and I began to, be more on a spiritual journey. It appeared to us that way. We began to pray about things and to see the Lord answer prayer. Um, I had a couple of jobs uh, in economics. Um, my second job was at a school in Texas named Mary Harden Baylor. It's now a university. It's, it's a good school, I think. Um, but there in Texas... Katie and I became involved with Campus Crusade for Christ in terms of taking some training about how to do evangelism and so forth. And uh, we did that, and we were pretty amazed by all that. And uh, one day in coming home from work, uh, Katie was reading a magazine published by Campus Crusade. I don't remember the name of it. But there was an advertisement on the back for something called the Agape Movement. And the ad said, we're looking for teachers, nurses, other professionals who would be willing to go overseas, work in their vocation, and share Christ. Mm-hmm. I was a teacher. She was a nurse. She said, My wife said, why don't we do this? And I said, okay, let's do it. And, uh, yeah, we made some snap decisions in those days. <laughs> And so we did. So we joined staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, Eventually, we were assigned to work on campus in Bolivia. Okay. We had to learn Spanish in order to do that. So uh, our authorities sent us to Mexico for about eight months. We went to language school, learned Spanish. Then we went to Bolivia, worked in university down there in terms of university evangelism and discipleship. Uh, I met a couple of lifelong friends down there. In fact, I've just seen them recently. One is named Daniel Hurtado, and the other is Tito Ramos. Okay. They, they both still work for Campus Crusade. So I have just recently worked with them again after many years. Um, Same organization? Uh, yes. Saint Tito R- Ramos is head of the nationwide Campus Crusade movement. It's called Crew now. Okay. Oh, okay. CRU, Crew movement. Okay. So that's, that's what he's head of. Um, anyway, uh, when we got back to the United States, after about three years with Campus Crusade, and uh, our assignment was kind of over there with the Agape movement, and so we decided to go back into college teaching. Um, and that's when I came to Union, where I was for a long time. But when I came back to Union, to the United States, I began to sense that God was calling me to become a Bible teacher. There was only one problem with that, which is I didn't really know my Bible. You were an economics professor I at was, that point? I was an economics professor, yes. Okay. So, I began to read Bible, read theology, read commentaries, and uh, basically it's after a long process of discovery, uh, I do see that the spiritual gift that God has given me really is teaching, mm-hmm. not economics necessarily, but okay. teaching Scripture. And so that's how my vocation as teaching Scripture developed. As you say, it was a process of discovery over a good many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah. A good many years, it sounds like. A good many years. Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're traveling and teaching in other countries slowed during your time as in— Economics professor, but it didn't necessarily Stop,
1: is what it sounds well, like you're no, saying No, it didn't stop I uh, I was a member of a very good Church uh, here in Jackson uh-huh. uh, Woodland Baptist Church At that time, and they uh, They had some excellent Bible teachers there, at Woodland, very, very Good um, However uh, I was approached, if I Would be willing to teach uh, A class of married couples my wife and I, and I said yes. And so I probably taught scripture at Woodland for I don't know twenty years. Yeah. But during that time, uh, in the summers through various things, the Lord opened a door for me to travel to Latin America for two weeks, one week, three weeks, and teach Bible there uh, in what I call Bible institutes. It's okay, not like seminaries. It's not. It's more not as high powered. But for a lot of these men in these Bible institutes, they may not have, a, for instance, a high school diploma. They might have six years of education, eight years of education. But they want to know more Bible. They want to learn. And they want to learn theology. And, uh, so there's not really uh, an analogous thing in the United States. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Okay. Um, we do have in the United States Bible colleges. Okay. Uh, which, I mean, it's more of a four-year school. Uh, it's the curriculum is Bible pretty much mm-hmm. in terms of Bible institutes. I think we probably do have those. I, um, I, I can't call any names right off the bat, but it would be a shorter coursework without such academic requirements. In other words, we might, I suspect we do have places where men and women can come in who don't have high school diplomas mm-hmm. and can study scripture. I suspect those places exist. In the United States. And the goal is not
0: necessarily for them to become a pastor, or is that the goal? In Latin America, most of these guys are already
1: pastors. Okay. Um, I don't remember the statistic. Uh, it seems to be around, let's say, 80% of the evangelical pastors in the world don't have any training. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a crying need for this uh, around the world. Yeah. So you go in to... These
0: countries and they're primarily spanish-speaking countries uh yes uh uh
1: spanish-speaking also portuguese portuguese those two okay i mean those are the languages i know so that's you know what i try to do try to i try to use what i
0: have and and you go to these facilities and you teach for how long
1: it depends um uh the format could differ Uh um i might go for a week and Uh, Maybe teach uh, a book of scripture. Uh, Recently, I was in Honduras at a local church. In Honduras, I taught the book of Hebrews, but I taught it in two days all day Saturday and then part, you know, half day Sunday or whatever it was. And and we got through it. But this wasn't exactly a Bible institute, this was more like a local congregation, Mm -hmm. but they're just going further in scripture. So that's that's what I did there. Almost like a retreat kind of thing. Yeah, something like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. interesting. Huh? How many different countries have you done this at?
1: Oh, a lot. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> All right. Well, you mentioned Honduras. You mentioned uh, Bolivia. Yes.
1: Uh, I've worked in Peru. Uh, I've worked in Venezuela and Brazil. Nicaragua. Guatemala and Mexico. Okay, and then across the Atlantic, I've also worked in Spain and Portugal. Which ones within this past year? Within this past year, um, uh, Bolivia and Honduras. Uh, uh, it seems like maybe Ecuador before that. Okay, maybe those three. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: that's a lot of traveling.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, well, I, since my retirement from Union a couple of years ago, I've I've been traveling about four times a year. Hmm. I don't know if I'll keep that up or not. Uh, Katie has been able to go with me about half of those times. Okay, and some of the other times I've gone by myself. So, does she speak Spanish and Sk- Portuguese also? Katie does speak Spanish. Uh, she doesn't speak Portuguese. Okay, yeah, hmm. that's
0: interesting. So. It sounds like you're saying that even though you're retired as an economics professor, you're not retired in this other area of your life, and it's still still going strong.
1: Well, uh, again, I, I feel like it's a vocation that yeah. Christ has given me to fulfill. Yeah. And uh, if I can, I mean, I would like to keep going until I'm not able physically to right. go. I mean, right. that, at some point in time, that will happen, or yeah. physically, I can't do it. Yeah. Uh, but if I'm in good health, which praise the Lord, I seem to be right now, uh, I'd like to keep going. On the other hand, it also depends on what opportunities open up. It's not like I have just a, you know, a five-year plan or anything like that. I mean, I don't. Right. I don't even have a one-year plan usually. (laughs) But, uh In various ways, uh, the Lord provides various open doors that I can push on a little bit and and go in sometime.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, I'm also interested in the fact that you have multiple languages under your belt. Uh, So Spanish, Portuguese. um, I feel like you've mentioned there are some others that you've studied. Didn't you
1: study French a little bit? Just a little bit. Just a little bit, okay. Uh, one semester. Uh, Katie is still studying French. Oh, okay. Some, uh, uh, because my youngest daughter is speaking French with her husband, so that's one reason we wanted to learn something. It's a I, good reason. That's a good reason. She's doing better in it than I am, but okay. that's where we are
0: with that, uh-huh. yeah. So Spanish and Portuguese, uh, Any any other
1: languages that you've... I have studied here at Union. This has been a good many years ago. I've studied uh, Hebrew, okay, um, which I liked very much. I'm, I'm sorry I wasn't able to go further with it and really get better in it. I mean, I I, I had a you know some vocabulary I could, I could recognize and things like that. I I wish I could have gone. Uh, I wish I could have gone three or four years with. It. that. Really, would, okay. that would have been great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but well, you know, if
0: you're if you're primary thing is theology and Bible teaching, that would be
1: a good one. It's helpful. Yeah. It is helpful. Yeah. And like a lot of, I'm assuming, probably pastors who studied Greek, although I know that you're good at Greek, but who studied Greek and maybe Hebrew, I mean, if you're really not reading it, I mean, you're going to get weaker in it. So mm-hmm. I think what what we can do as Bible teachers, if you know the alphabets and you can read it some uh, is to use uh, word study books Mm -hmm. dictionaries Um, I have a terrific source uh, in Old Testament called Theological Word Book of the Old Testament Um, and it's got every or almost every Hebrew word in it with a a fairly detailed discussion of the meaning of these Hebrew words it is a great resource
0: okay yeah Uh. one thing that I have discovered through greek is that it's it's hard for me to add another thing on my to-do list in the day to study greek <laughs> but if i incorporate it into something that's already there it makes it a lot easier so in my case if i'm already going to be reading i might as well read in the greek translation and so it's a way to kind of kill two birds with one stone has that been is that how you keep up with your languages also uh. Well, yes, uh,
1: if I have a venture in which I need to go to a Bible Institute or to Latin America Mm -hmm. and do some teaching, I always like to prepare. I don't like just to go down there and just wing it. Okay. So I'm preparing uh, what I want to do. So if I'm going to be speaking in Spanish, I try to prepare in Spanish. So I'm using Spanish Bible and all that. Write Spanish Spanish notes. I do. Sometimes I write my notes in Spanish, some in English, and it would be the same in Portuguese. I mean, I would try to prepare in Portuguese, and then you're doing all the Bible work and you know all the cross-references and stories and things you want to bring out um, Mm -hmm. in terms of your notes. Uh, So I do that. Yes, I do prepare in the language, yes.
0: So you prefer not to use a translator. You prefer to just speak it directly.
1: Yeah, well, for sure in Spanish. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I, yes, I've I've translated myself a good bit uh-huh. from English into Spanish for other people. I've actually done it a little bit in Portuguese. I'm not as strong in Portuguese, but I think this summer when Patrick and I go down, I'm I'm going to be translating for him. Okay. So, um, for one thing, the place where we're going has almost no English speakers in it. So um, maybe one or two but I but I'll be translating there.
0: Uh-huh. Are there any other ways that you that you keep the language up uh, when you're not over there? Any any ways that you can keep it strong while you're
1: while you're home? When I got back from Latin America and this has been a long long time ago. Well, let's call it 1980, eh. Um I wanted to keep my language up. I didn't want to lose it. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Now, at that time, there were not as many Hispanics here in the area as there are now. Uh-huh. uh There just weren't. So how am I going to do it? Um, so what I did was to buy myself a shortwave radio that I could tune into Spanish language broadcasting. And I did my daily devotions in Spanish. And I did that for a couple of years. That's awesome. Um but it, it seems like in terms of speaking spanish that i i reached some kind of a plateau if you want to call it that mm-hmm. where i can go back into the culture I, I could go say to guatemala or somewhere and i'm just back in the language i'm just back in the language and the culture it i don't it just comes back and yeah so i praise the lord for that i mean i can't i can't explain it mm-hmm. so now uh, i'm not doing a lot of work necessarily to, to keep the language going, but in terms of preparing s- scriptural teaching, yes, I use Spanish Bible or I use Portuguese Bible. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, be- if you're immersed in the culture, that's a completely different experience than, than trying to take a, a class or using one of these language learning apps you know, people have on their phone. It's so different because it doesn't use, it doesn't incorporate body language for one thing. Um, and it doesn't incorporate all the other nonverbal communication that goes on, you know, in a, if you're sitting down talking with someone, it's just a completely different experience.
1: Oh, right. And for sure, that's the best way to learn any language is to be over there mm-hmm. for a certain amount of time and be in the culture. Um, if a person has enough passion to learn a language even without being immersed in it, uh, it's possible. I think as many resources are, as are available, say, on YouTube, where you can hear mm-hmm. Spanish or you can hear French being spoken a lot, it just depends on the zeal that a person has to learn. We had a young man here at Union, I can't remember his name, uh, a good many years ago, and for some reason he got interested in the Portuguese language. And we don't teach Portuguese here at Union, but as a student here at Union, he learned Portuguese. I mean, he, he was just after it. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a zeal, you, you can do it. But, yeah, of course, it is much better if you can, as for instance, if you wanted to learn French, I mean, if you could live in France for six months, if, if you have a, some ability, I mean, you you'll have it. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah,
0: kind of. Gives your brain no other alternative but to learn it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Well, that's interesting. Um, I took one semester of German during my time as a as a student here at yeah. Union, and um, part of the final was to sit down with the professor and talk with them in German for ten minutes. <laughs> that's pretty scary. And that was probably that was probably one of the scariest. Things that I had to do as a student out of all the tests and all the, I don't know, um, you know, you have your your senior thesis and the defense and all that stuff that you have to do. But this was way scarier than that. I agree. Because um, it's one on one and, you know, going into it that you're going to be not as good as the person sitting across from you. It's, it's not a question of are you going to mess up? It's how bad are you going to mess up? That's right. So, yeah. Um, but man, that that moment really helped to solidify a lot of it in my mind. Sure. You know, even though it was a super stressful setting and it was only for 10 minutes, I feel like that conversation did more good for
1: teaching me German than a lot of the lectures throughout the semester. Absolutely. And it's the same thing about living in the culture. I mean, Mm -hmm. you hear people speaking this language And you may not be sure about uh, which word do I use here, which word do I use there, but it's just like a little kid picking up language, you know? You hear a person say something, and you repeat it, say, well, this must be right, and you begin to learn.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, that's fun. (laughs) So
0: as a Bible teacher in – well, on multiple continents, um, you see – your 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 perspective on the church at large is different from my own. My my perspective is way more localized. Um, so I'm curious to know what you what you think about ways that that Christianity in the West is doing good and ways that it's not doing so good. What you think the needs are? Um, just Kind of its health in
1: general at this at
0: this point in time.
1: Well, in terms of my experience in Latin America and Spanish speaking America, um, Spanish speaking preachers, generally speaking, are wonderful preachers. We don't really have to, a lot to teach them about preaching. Okay. As in the art of preaching? As in the art of preaching. Okay. I think what Americans can offer is training, is pastoral training and biblical training and biblical teaching. Okay. In fact, I've heard it from Latins themselves. They say this is what we need.
0: So it's more uh, content than delivery?
1: Absolutely. Okay. Their delivery is fine. Okay. It's it's content. Mm Mm-hmm. Plus, I would say, biblical teaching and also, I would say, theological teaching and theological training. Um, And this is true in in the United States, too. I mean, many pastors or maybe Christians in general may not be that interested, not, not so much in theology, but they may not be interested in all the... Whatever you know, forty-five heresies that attacked the early church, right? But somebody needs to be interested in it, and uh, if, the, if we ha- and, and I don't think I'm that person, but if we if we have a resource, a person who knows that, that's a tremendous help for the church, because those people can smell wrong teaching a mile away. And so that that becomes very helpful for the health of the church uh, without getting some various kinds of wrong emphases or wrong uh, teaching going in the church that can be damaging to the, to the faith. So those things are, are helpful and necessary in Latin America. I think theological training is needed. I think bibl- simply biblical teaching is needed. Uh And I think many of of the third world pastors would agree with that. They would Hmm. say, yeah, this is what we need. Is that more, uh, I'm trying to think of what the right word is.
0: Is it preventative or is it? In order to
1: correct bad teaching that already exists, well, there may uh, there may not be necessarily so much bad teaching that exists, although there is. I mean, uh, the health and wealth movement or health and wealth teaching is basically sweeping the world, not only in Latin America but in Africa too. Okay. So you, you so know, you see it.
0: You see it happening on a very large scale. Oh, it's huge. I mean,
1: you know, you give a certain amount of money to the evangelist and God multiplies it back a hundred times. And Mm -hmm. that kind of teaching is very, very big. Uh, If, you know, if we, if we fill in the right squares, then God basically financially, then God gives us money and uh, stuff like that. So um, I'm just not involved in that kind of teaching at all. Yeah. Although yeah. I, I probably am about a one percent health and wealth teacher, one <laughs> percent, one percent—that's not very much. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there is some not only teaching but also evidence that uh, he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord, says the proverbs. And God, I don't think, likes to be in debt to his, his children. So, I well, think there there's a way there to seem to
0: be there seem to be some spiritual laws. That exist in the same way that scientific or natural laws exist, like you know laws like reaping and sowing and the, things like that. The I mean, law of the
1: harvest. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah.
0: that's just as real as the law
1: of thermodynamics. I think so. I, I think the the problem in teaching and I we do teach, say the law of the harvest. I mean it's true. I think the problem with that is the timing of the law of the harvest. We don't know exactly when the payoff for good or for bad is going to come. Is it going to happen instantly? Is it going to happen five years down the road, 25 years down the road? I don't think the pastor or the teacher really knows the answer to that question. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And also, it, it goes astray when it says that the maker of the laws has to abide by them, has to abide by them, so putting God in a box and saying that he has to act in a certain way because I have done this. Therefore, God has to do this.
1: Well, right. I mean, I, yes, I think we're abusing the law of the harvest then, mm-hmm. there. So, you know, I've done certain good works. Therefore, God must repay me in kind. And even more than that, it very well may happen. But, I mean, in terms of timing, yeah. Uh, yeah. there's no way to, to tell or to yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I, I, and, and I, you're right. I mean, God has to be free. Um, so God can bless us in many ways, although as, you know, sort of materialistic people, we tend to be hung up a little bit on money or health, but, uh, you know, there are other ways that we can experience the blessings of God. For instance, a good marriage, Yeah. a good family. I mean, wow, what a blessing, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. So you see that, that... Prosperity gospel kind of vending machine kind of teaching. It's kind happening of a, on a large scale. Yeah. It's
1: on a large scale, and uh, uh, I mean, there, there's no no putting it back. I don't think no way to to, to say, hey, don't do this. But uh, wherever we're preaching or teaching, we simply try to preach the truth mm-hmm. and and. Go ahead, you know.
0: Yeah, any other any other things that you notice on a large scale in terms of just the church in general that maybe that maybe people in a more localized setting like myself might not see.
1: Well, the the organization that I've worked with for a good many years, uh, Indigenous Outreach with Patrick Beard, is basically a financial support raising organization to help indigenous pastors financially. I would say that's a need, um, for sure. Uh, if we get into that, I think we have to be discerning because once it becomes like a vending machine, I mean, once Mm -hmm. people know that, then you might be inundated with requests or I need this, I need that. So you have to have some people you can trust. Um, who can vouch for people, for instance, in Ethiopia where Patrick does most of his work. Uh, we have Nagash Hemeda who is kind of our lead man over there, spiritual yeah. guy, very discerning. And uh, so the guys he would recommend to us are not just are not just in it for the money. I mean, they've very likely already been in the ministry for a number of years and maybe struggling along a lot financially, so if some kind of financial, monthly financial help can help them greatly in their mm-hmm. ministry. Same in uh, Brazil. We have a pastor there named Alberto Costa, who, again, is a man of wisdom and, and discernment, and he seems not to be in the habit of just bringing anybody on uh, that comes across his path, but he has some discernment about these men.
0: So we've, we've had... Um Patrick Beard on, and we've had uh, Brian Dinker on the on the podcast, and multiple times with these different people. Just in the course of conversation, um, not intentionally, the the theme of miracles has become kind of a recurring theme. Um, for people only in America, uh, the the tendency is to say that. Miracles just don't happen that often today anymore. Um, now, having taught in on multiple continents and having taught for a, a good number of years, what is your perspective on, on miracles?
1: Well, um, I would say we need to think about first what we mean by miracle. Yeah. I would say, in the Christian world, among Western American European Christians, that were, in which the faith has been in these places for a long, long time, I would say that probably many, many Christians have seen amazing answers to prayer. Mm-hmm. But when you get an amazing answer to prayer, Or there's some coincidences that you know can't just be coincidences. There's a divine hand behind it. Uh, You may not be able to prove that to anyone else. And uh, someone else may not see that as a miracle. And I say, well, it's a coincidence and it happened. You see it. Again, I don't know the word we want to use. We want to use miracle, particularly in things like divine healing. Yeah. Where we pray for people and they get well. Okay. Let's just take that as an example. We pray for people, and they get well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I would call that a divine answer to prayer for sure. A person who's not a Christian might say, well, you know, that's nice, but uh, the person got well. So, I mean, that's it. They may not see any divine interaction there. So I think those kind of things go on. Uh, Divine healing, Surely. Um, you may see some kind of amazing answers to prayer. could be in terms of finances. Lord, I need a uh, hundred dollars to make this out. I I'm asking you for it. And you know, you see it happen and you know what happened, but other people may not know what happened. So that's one way I think we can talk about miracles. It's a very,
0: uh, it's a very personal way of looking at miracles that 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 God answers prayer, but it's not in a very flashy way that a bunch of people at one time can see.
1: I think generally I would say yes. Okay. Uh, except when we get into where Patrick works a long time in uh, in the third world in general, and in Ethiopia in particular, uh, where the gospel may go into a village for the first time, uh, where uh, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone is not really preached or not well understood, even though the people may be members of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Okay. Or maybe not. Uh, Or a village in Ethiopia may be controlled uh, by the witch doctor, who's the local strong man and has everybody all afraid and in bondage. The problem with these witch doctors is that they seem to be able to actually do stuff. Hmm. uh where yeah like, that's not a very uh
0: comfortable notion for for a more uh science-based
1: culture like ourselves no it's not but <clears throat> if you are an ev- a church planting evangelist let's say you're kind of a an Indiana Jones type <laughs> uh going out into the the desert on your own and Preaching the gospel in a village that's dominated by witchcraft, you're probably going to see strange stuff happen.
0: Hmm.
1: Like people, you know, will come out and uh, who knows what. I mean, maybe fall on the ground and begin to twitch and tremble and stuff and this. And the villagers say, well, this, this person's demon possessed. And so you, as the evangelist, who claim to believe in Christ, who can do a lot of things, you may be called upon to see what Christ can do <laughs> to remedy that situation. Okay. And what does that look like? Uh, well, it looks like casting out demons is what it looks like. Yeah. Uh, and a, a friend of mine, and, and I here have done some of this, uh, I would say... It basically follows a similar format in terms of what I think, which is basically you go in, establish an atmosphere of prayer and praise, read scripture, and simply begin to tell the demons in Christ's name they've got to come out. And you you just kind of keep going with it, I mean, until the person gets, uh, gets well. You don't necessarily have to be screaming and hollering or, or jumping around. It doesn't have to be that way. I mean, we work in the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, and the power of the Word of God. And uh, But I, I agree with you. This may be a little bit out of the wheelhouse of a lot of European Christians.
0: It definitely, for, for Protestant uh, Christians here, that's definitely not a day-to-day occurrence. You know, it, it's, not, it's not normal life like it sounds like it is over there.
1: No, it's not normal life. And, and over there, I don't want to give the wrong impression. It may not be exactly normal life over there either. Okay. But there are uh, villages uh, that simply are steeped in witchcraft, black magic, all of this kind of stuff. And that's thats where people live. They live in that. Mm-hmm. And so when the gospel comes in, it provides a great liberation of people. Uh, but the demons may have a tendency to fight back also. So you get that kind of intense spiritual warfare, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right on the edges, right on the frontier when the when the gospel's coming in for the first time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And in a in a culture that that responds more to I'm not even sure if these are the right terms.
1: More to acts of power than knowledge or wisdom. Oh, I think that's that's true, and I think that's why the evangelist has to be at least willing to engage in some of this kind of spiritual warfare.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, wisdom, and I, by wisdom I mean informational wisdom, knowledge yeah, that's right. that's held in very high regard here in here in America. You know, the the great right. Bible teachers and the ones who are really I guess close to Christ, the ones who are doing a really good job of being a Christian, uh, we think that those are the ones that that have all the answers, and that's a very that's a very Western notion,
1: and that's not necessarily the case in other parts of the world. Well, you're exactly right, and and I'm I'm trying to have a balance. I, I mean between mm-hmm. uh, you know Bible knowledge, theological knowledge, yeah, orthodoxy, but also understanding some of the spiritual war things that that c- can go on mm-hmm. and they do go on some in our country too I mean we may not be you know that familiar with it but it does happen here too
0: have you and I don't mean to put you on the spot here but have you had any experiences like that in America
1: yes okay
0: is that something that you'd like to get into uh probably not okay fair enough <laughs> fair enough Um, you, you said one time something that stuck with me. It's a phrase that you use that I think applies to what we're talking about. You said, um, you call it the excluded middle. Yes. Could you kind of explain what you mean by that and, and how it pertains to what we're talking about? Yes.
1: Uh, I got this phrase from a missionary and, uh, guy named Peter Wagner, who actually did work in Bolivia for a good while. And then he, uh, moved to California, and I believe he's a professor or was a professor at Fuller Seminary. His idea was this, that there's kind of a difference in the way that third world Christians pray and European and American Christians pray. If you're an American Christian, you pray to the Father in Christ's name, and the Father responds and answers prayer, and great We're, we we rejoice, but the third world Christian tends to pray in a slightly different way. he prays to the Father <clears throat> that the Father, through the Holy Spirit would control these demonic powers that are sort of in that middle area that that excluded middle that we don't think about too much okay and so as as the Holy Spirit controls these demonic powers then they ask that uh, God would respond to whatever their petition is. But they, in other words, they, they like to bind the demons first. That's not that they're binding them, but that, that God is. So they, they work a lot more in what Wagner calls the excluded middle than we do. In fact, you can talk to pagans, uh, people who are not Christians, but who maybe are very involved in witchcraft or something like that. Uh, they can tell you. And I would say teach you a lot about spiritual reality that also, we, we don't really we don't really apprehend. OK, they can teach you about the reality of various spirits that that operate uh, in our world. And of course, the 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 way that witchcraft tries to work is to try to appease, influence, whatever you want to say, influence these. Spirits, so that these spirits will do various things in the world that they want to happen. That's the way witchcraft works. Oh, well, I see. So you're saying that
0: that witchcraft and and uh, fortune telling and all of that stuff, there is usually a bit of a bit of truth to what they're doing, or it's it's based in at least a little bit of reality?
1: Is that what you're saying? It depends. I okay. mean, fortune-telling can be a complete sham. It can yeah. be a complete con job. Uh, when things begin to come true, uh, you better watch out. You better yeah. be careful. Yeah. I did hear a story one time about a pastor, uh, an evangelical guy believed in Christ, but he got somehow involved in fortune-telling or reading fortune-telling. And unfortunately, the fortunes began to come true in his life. And the more they began to come true, the weaker his spiritual life became and the weaker his relationship with Christ became.
0: Is it all negative fortune stuff coming true or uh, was it, it positive uh, stuff? It, in his it life? could be either
1: way. The okay. problem is that uh, you're dealing, as he, I think, later understood, you're dealing with a demonic source here. Uh, you're communing with a demonic source. And this is not pleasing to our Lord, and the pastor understood that and was able to somehow rid himself of that. Yeah. But it was a bad experience that he went through.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's a really interesting way of looking at it, and I think I think you're I think you're right because because if you look in in the the Bible itself, there isn't a whole lot of indication that this kind of uh, demonic activity or witchcraft is a complete sham. The question is, which god is stronger? <laughs> you know, that's the question. Um, there, are, there are stories in the Old Testament of people successfully summoning people from the dead. There, you know, there are stories of demonic activity all over the New Testament. And at no point is it assumed that that stuff is all just a psychological trick. The question is uh, whether Yahweh
1: is stronger. Well, that's exactly right. And uh, I think you used earlier a phrase, works of power. And, and yeah. sometimes uh, people in the third world are, are interested in that. I remember hearing a story one time from the Far East. I don't remember what country, if it was China or Thailand or, or where it was. But anyway, a Christian uh, a Christian, was sharing the gospel I assume with a person or with a group of people. I don't remember how it was. But the the Oriental uh, person said, oh, yes, you believe in the God who can't do anything. Hmm. In other words, you're right. Their orientation is if there's a God out there, I mean, let's see some power here. And so uh, I think these are things that we're not. Not sure "trained" is the right word. We're not. Uh, it's a blind spot. It's a blind spot. Uh, yes, uh, I think this may be a blind yeah. spot that we and it's not overcome. something that we want to overemphasize either. No, yeah, not at all. And don't don't get the impression that this is my this is what I do and my right. ministry. Right. That's that's not the case at all. I'm just saying, if things happen, then we should. Be discerning enough to to know what it is. Mm-hmm.
0: I I know a couple people in my life, and a couple of them I'm actually pretty close with, that seem to have more of a sensitivity to this sort of thing than I do. Um, and so I wonder, you know, you mentioned spiritual gifts earlier. Um, I think early in the start of our conversation, you said your spiritual gift is teaching. I wonder if there are some people who just are naturally more attuned to this sort of
1: thing than others. Well, I think the scripture says that one of the gifts is discernment of spirits. Oh, it does not Okay. I, I, okay. As I'm, now, we'll have to look it up. But yeah. I, I, think, yeah. I, I think it says that. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, I, I fully agree. And and it, just on our own experience, it's
0: it's pretty clear. Well, in every people, other dimension of life, some people are more gifted than others. Certainly. You know, in, in terms of physical strength some people are more gifted than others in terms of mental strength some people are more gifted than others maybe spiritual
1: strength is the same way I have a friend here in town um, and he's not been involved in this I think in a long long time Uh, but um, one of his spiritual gifts I would say is discernment of spirits particularly evil spirits in other words if there are evil spirits around this individual tends to become highly nervous and highly agitated. Uh, I don't, but it's just a, that's something that he has. yeah
0: yeah, yeah. 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 Um, are dreams usually involved with these kind of experiences
1: with, with people that you know? Well, I think, you know, again, we have to be discerning uh, mm-hmm. about your own dreams or about my own dreams. or any of these things a communication that God's trying to tell us personally something? I think we're not adding to the scripture here. I wouldn't be happy in preaching some of this stuff. Is yeah. But maybe as communicating a message to you personally. In my experience... Maybe a time or two. Mm-hmm. Usually, my dreams are just a bunch of nonsense, like, <laughs> like anything else.
0: <laughs> the main factor is just what kind of food you ate the night before. <laughs> uh, could be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I have not, I have not been to uh, some of these these cultures that I have in mind when I say this. But I, I'm told that there are some places in the world where God seems to move more
1: through dreams. Well, certainly, and you're thinking about the uh, world of Islam, particularly. And yes. of course, we hear those stories all the time that uh, a person has, you know, had this dream and they inquire and become Christians. This happened uh, with the ministry and in indigenous outreach recently. I don't know if you've heard this story on the air or not.
0: I mean, I've heard a couple stories. I don't know
1: which one you're. Well, about this to one tell. Was, was with Stephen Kennedy and his recent ministry over there, and yeah, they had that. Exact situation where a Muslim came inquiring, said, "Hey, I had a dream, and you know, I'm just asking." And the the man converted to Christ. Yeah.
0: Some of these some of these stories that you hear are really profound, and the kind of things that happen in the dreams, um, they're extremely specific, and like it, you can't interpret them any other way other than God is speaking to you. Uh,
1: I think it's, that's right. Yeah,
0: it's pretty pretty remarkable, and I haven't had. That experience. Um, but I would be hesitant to say that that every single one of them isn't true. You know, there's just too many of those stories
1: out there. Well, it's hard to argue against a man who's had an experience. And it has such a profound impact on his life. <laughs> it's like the uh, like the blind man that was healed by Jesus, you know, and the Pharisees are trying to get him to confess. Yeah. And, well, who is this guy? Where does he live? What's his address? Uh-huh. He's, uh, he doesn't have any answer all he says is okay i was blind and now i can see that's my answer Uh uh-huh that's that was his experience yeah yeah he had no other testimony than that (laughs) well this
0: is fascinating i didn't mean to go down this rabbit trail with (laughs) you but this is great um so you want to keep talking about your travels, or do you want to talk about economics?
1: You're the you're the host, so okay. you, you lead us off.
0: <laughs> well, I am interested uh, about your time as an economics professor because I don't know you as an economics professor. I know you as a theologian. So it's interesting to, to hear rumors about this other side of you that I haven't experienced. So I guess a good way to start with that is... What got you interested in economics in the first place?
1: Well, um, I studied economics as an undergraduate, and I liked it very much. I um, I was in the business school, and <clears throat> the first economics course I took, I said, "Wow, this is I could get my teeth into this." I wasn't that interested in some of the other disciplines in the business school, but economics, I was. Okay. So I was just attracted to it more and more, and um, I. For a good while, even earlier on in in university, I had thought that I would like to pursue a master's degree, I mean, regardless of what else I did. So uh, Katie and I uh, did move to Baton Rouge in uh, 1970 and uh, began to do master's degree work in economics at Louisiana State. Uh, One thing led to another, and I thought, well, you know, I'd I'd really like to pursue a vocation in teaching here. So I went ahead and I was accepted into the Ph.D. program and went ahead and studied economics and got my degree uh, from LSU in 1975. Um, How did I get into it? Uh, Was there any big revelation from Christ? Not that I remember. It was just, you know... Well, I, I like this. I, I think I, I'd like to do this. And one your thing brain responded another. well to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, so that that's how I got into it. And mm-hmm. uh, once I'd gotten a a doctorate, and I was attracted at that by that time to university teaching. Also, I said, well, this is something I think I'd like to do. So it was really a vocational decision. Um, uh, I wasn't. Uh, a spiritual giant, let's say. I I was really kind of a nominal Christian, you might say, at that time. However, I don't fault any young man or any young woman for making a vocational decision. Uh, Why? Because we have to earn a living. That's why. And particularly if you're married, uh, we need to get a job. And uh, I don't have any. Stones to throw against young people making, well, you might say, secular vocational decisions. I have nothing bad to say about that. Uh, in fact, in a certain way, it's biblical because in the sweat of our face, that's how we earn our bread mm-hmm. from Genesis. Yeah. So this is uh, yeah. this is God's God's way with us, I think, as we become adults. His way w- with us is, hey, you've got to earn a living. Now, how you earn it? Well... Well, you have to figure that out some people are more spiritual than others about this uh, I wasn't that's what I call spiritual at the time but that's how I got into it
0: so as a as a recently married person and now as a young father I'm starting to appreciate the book of Ecclesiastes more and more and uh, one of the things that I take away from that book is that good work is one of the best things that life has to offer that there's not a whole lot better than
1: good work and good family life I, and good food. Well, of course, I do agree with what the Bible says, <laughs> but, I, but I fully agree. Yeah, Good work is a terrific benefit. It's a terrific blessing from God. I call it in the in the realm of common grace mm-hmm. because you can find unbelievers who are good at their work and who enjoy it. It's a tremendous benefit. Um, I must say that during my, you know, almost 40 years of teaching economics, that I enjoyed my work, I enjoyed interacting with the students, and I enjoy university life in general. So what can I say? I mean, it was, just as you say, it was a tremendous blessing, and Mm -hmm. I see it just as a tremendous benefit that God gave me. It's true that some people don't enjoy their work. I'm sorry about that. But um, if they don't, nevertheless, uh, given the mandate we have in Genesis, you still have to work whether you enjoy it or not. Yeah. So there's no use complaining about it and ruining everybody else's day <laughs> about how much you hate your work and all that because who wants to hear all that stuff? I mean, so if it's your burden, well, just bear it, man. I mean, just work and just keep working. you got to earn a living. you got to support your family. So yeah. let's, let's try to be happy with it. Yeah.
0: You know? That's great. Yeah. That's great. It's a contentment issue. <laughs> it is.
1: <laughs> That's great. So you enjoy the academic world. I enjoy it very much. What is it that you like about it? I like reading books. Um, I liked economics because of the kind of the puzzle uh, nature of it, sort okay. of intellectual challenge Yeah. Uh, of working some of these models out and then seeing how they apply to the real world, how accurate they are and so forth. I mean, mm-hmm. I enjoyed all that
0: i can I can understand that i i'm I'm not well versed in economics at all, but I think I have a similar brain in that I like the more problem solving kind of disciplines um, so are there any particular economic schools of thought that you gravitate to more than others or
1: did you kind of just teach them all and just well, provide an overview well in principles of economics you sort of teach it all i I guess my basic orientation uh, is that I very much like free market economics. Um, okay. I think when we get into planned economy, uh, either of the socialist or the communist stripe or the fascist. So that would be more the Marx school of thought. Marx school of thought. We, it could also apply to fascism too, which is mm-hmm. sometimes called corporatism, where the government and all the big companies are sort of big pals and the government kicks a lot of big contracts. And we have that some in our country. Yeah. But it's like when a whole nation is kind of operating that way. Uh, you don't get real good input from the consumers. In ter- for instance, what do the consumers really want? So if you have an economy that's planned from the top down, you don't get that consumer input. Like, well, it's great to produce 100,000 raincoats this month, but what kind of raincoats do the consumers want? You don't get that in a planned economy. Um. So I think a bottom-up approach from consumer demand up through the companies and so forth is really the way to go. And it also promotes a lot of, of productive e- efficiency, hmm. whereas uh, – There's more incentive? There's more incentive. Uh, there's a wage incentive uh, for the earners, particularly if you're on some kind of commission or something. There's a profit incentive in terms of the owners, um, and there's a, an incentive to do good work. Yeah. You don't you don't get that in a, in a top-down planned economy. Hmm. It's like everybody working for the government, you know? I mean, you're going to get your paycheck whether you do good work or not, generally speaking. Um, so you don't get the
0: same kind of incentives. Yeah. Okay. Well, it seems like for people in my generation, the more... Uh, Marxist way of looking at things is becoming more and more appealing. Uh, and, and terms, terms are so nebulous. People don't know what these terms mean. They just kind of repeat what other people say. But the idea that everybody is being taken v- advantage of by these really big companies and uh, the best thing that we can do is have some sort of uh, government intervention that that's a really appealing idea to people of my generation, and I mean, I, I guess I have two two things with that. One, it's easy when you are surrounded by something where it's so much a part of the culture to only see the bad side. You you don't see the good side because it's it's there all the time. Um, so there are there are benefits to. The more free market style that you don't notice until it's taken away, until it's not there anymore. Um, but also, it sounds like you're saying that the government doesn't always know what people want in the first place.
1: Exactly. And However, I, I wouldn't say that government should never intervene. Uh, I'm not saying that the heads of some of these giant companies are necessarily angels uh, or uh necessarily have the interest of their workers and the public at heart and may not they may be greedy and, and so forth. I, certainly that's true. yeah and government may have to intervene sometime to correct abuses. I, I, I think that's right. Um, there's um, there's a, a phrase uh, known as ownership of the means of production, and that becomes the watershed. In other words, who owns the means of production? Okay. Who owns the factories? If government owns all the means of production, you've got communism. If government doesn't own all the means of production, in other words, if the factories are in private hands or in the hands of companies, then you don't have a you don't have a top down planned economy. Would now, labor
0: be a means of production? Well surely. Okay. Surely. Okay.
1: So if you say own your own labor which you do, uh, it's possible, it would be possible for you to quit your job and look for another job. Um, I'm not sure how all that exactly worked out in Soviet communism, but I think maybe those freedoms would be limited, I would certainly think. Soviet communism was all of a piece. In other words, when you begin to take parts of the system out the whole system falls down. Hmm. In other words, the concentration camps were part of the peace. Joseph Stalin murdered probably 50 million people. We don't we don't talk about that very much. I mean, we like Hitler to be our bad guy. You mean guy. Hitler's not the worst person in the world? Well, he may be the, he may be the, he may be worse than Stalin. He's but, the one you but, hear but, about. But, but, you don't hear about yeah, Stalin we're, that much. We're, we're, we're yeah. comparing evils here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, how many people do you want to kill before you become really a bad guy? Yeah. Uh, So the concentration camps were part of it. The top-down planning was part of it. The inefficiency was part of it. The suppression of religion was part of it. Mm. It's all of a piece. With Gorbachev, when he came in, uh, he recognized that this is an archaic, inefficient, dinosaur-type system. And we've got to do something to improve it, to improve production and morale. He introduced something called glasnost, which means openness. We're going to be more open to public discussion. We're going to be more open to religion. We're not going to stamp down on it so hard. He also introduced something called perestroika, which means restructuring. We're going to restructure the way we produce. Give more incentive to the factory owners, uh, maybe more financial incentive, and to the workers, too. All that sounds great, and it was great. The only problem is when you begin to pull pull a few bricks out of the communist uh, structure, the whole thing falls down. And eventually, Mm. you know, we see the end of it, really, with the knocking down of the Berlin Wall and so forth. And Eastern Europe becomes free. Very much with the help of Pope John Paul II and Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. And and the whole thing crumbles down. So it, for communism to stay in power, it's, it's got to be all of a piece. I mean, you've got to have the secret police. You've got to have the camps. You've got to have the whole bit. When you begin to give people more freedom, particularly more religious freedom and hope in God, they become more independent in their thinking and so forth and, and the system collapses. So if there's something about the communist structure
0: that looks appealing from the outside that maybe we would like to see more of in our culture, we can't incorporate that without incorporating the other stuff? Is that what you're saying? Uh,
1: that's basically what I'm saying. Yeah. Hmm. You've got to suppress everything if you want to have a thoroughgoing, thoroughgoing communist system. It's kind of a scary thought. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we ha- may have more of a welfare kind of system where we have, have a lot of goods provided by government, like universities, like health care and all that. Yes, uh, I, I, that could be done and mm-hmm. still maintain a lot of market incentives in other parts of the economy. I think that's true. Uh, I would say to really do that, we should raise tax rates where we could pay for that stuff. Uh, in Sweden… Uh, they, they did a lot of those things, uh, free education, a lot of free housing, free universities, and so forth. There was a prime minister named Olaf Palmy who said, okay, this is great, but if we do this, we're going to have to pay for it. So we're raising the tax rates, I don't know what, to 60%. They did it. They raised the tax rates. He was assassinated. He paid for it with his life. But, you know, they raised the tax rates high enough to pay for these things. So if that's the way we want to go in the United States, I would say we need to be honest enough to raise your tax rates high enough to pay for all these um, items that government is going to produce. Have you been following
0: some of the uh, potential candidates for the next election? Have you been keeping up with that at all?
1: Not too much,
0: not too much <laughs> okay there's this there's this one there's this one guy there's this whole slew of democratic candidates yeah. that want to be the next the next president, yeah, one of them in particular is throwing around actual numbers, and uh, Angela and I were talking about this recently, and I told her he's not gonna make it because he's being too specific. People don't like it when you get that specific they they want to just hear free stuff, free stuff. And his problem is that he is too sincere and he, he's actually saying, here's how we can make this happen. And, uh, people don't like that that much. Well, I don't think we want to be too sincere as politicians. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of goes against the nature of the, of the beast, doesn't it? Yeah. So, okay. So what's the difference between
1: socialism and communism? Well, socialism has more of a human face to it. And uh, under, as I understand it, in a socialism, government, the government does not own all the means of production. Okay. Some of the means of production are still in private hands, mm-hmm. individual hands, corporate hands, and so forth. Government may be providing a lot of, quote, free stuff. Well, let's take university education, for instance, Okay. All of it's provided for free. Well, government would have to provide the funds to build those campuses, do the upkeep on the buildings, hire the security forces, hire all the profs. Uh, Okay. So each university has a certain, you know, millions of dollars of budget every year. So rather than raising those funds through tuitions and donations, government would have to provide those funds to the universities to be run at government expense. That's possible to do that. I would simply say that government should raise taxes correspondingly to be able to pay for that stuff rather than going into debt to pay for it. The fiscally responsible way would be to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So you taught
0: primarily macroeconomics? I did teach that a lot, yes. Okay. So the the principles of macroeconomics are basically the same as micro? Is it just a
1: question of scale? Well, in macroeconomics, we talk a lot about the federal budget, the size of the budget. We talk about gross domestic product, inflation rates, uh, money supply creation. Unemployment rates, uh, those kind of topics, whereas in microeconomics, you talk a lot more about supply and demand, how prices move, shortages and surpluses, things like that.
0: Yeah. Well, the reason why I ask is that when you are looking at like a family level or just one just one business on a small scale, uh, debt is a big concern. But it seems like once you start looking at whole countries, all concern about debt seems to just go out the window. And people seem to not care that the debt just keeps going up and up and up, and there seems to be no thought for the consequences later on of that. Well,
1: um, uh, my own belief uh, – I guess I'm not a total conservative here – is that government could carry some debt, Mm -hmm. just like the individual consumer, say you, could carry some debt. Mortgage, stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. The question – for me let's talk on an individual basis first the question for me is how much debt or debt service can i conveniently afford on a monthly basis mm mm-hmm. and you would have to determine that let's say when you're buying a house or whatever okay it costs so much on mortgage or if i'm buying a car it costs so much per month on the car so we add those two payments together that's got to come out of my monthly salary now can my wife and myself conveniently afford to pay this? If the answer is yes, then I would say, well, then you can carry some debt. In terms of a nation, since nations are sovereign, it's hard to think about attacking a nation to get them to pay their debts. Mm-hmm. I would say practically speaking, uh, there is amount, an amount of debt service which is interest payment on the national debt that has to be paid every month, every year, right? From my experience, it seems to me that as long as the debt service, the national debt service, is below 10% of the annual federal budget, that Congress does not care about the size of the national debt. But when the debt service begins to be over 10%, They begin to talk about it a little bit. They begin to be a little bit more nervous because, for instance, let's say the debt service was 15. And I don't know what it is right now in terms of percentages. Maybe maybe we're here. I don't think so. Let's say the debt service was 15% a year. That means that whatever monies the Treasury raises in terms of income tax, 15% of that goes away immediately into debt service. And Congress has only 85% of that take to work with in terms right. of the federal budget. So it's just like the individual consumer, really. The higher your debt service, the less you have for current expenditures and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the, the barrier, I think, that Congress is under uh, in terms of how big the national debt could be. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's a question of percentages. It's a question
1: of percentages. Yeah. 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 Okay. Huh.
0: So are there any... Are there any things that that as, as an expert in economics you think it's particularly important for young people like myself to understand about finances and, and the principles of how money works?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think as a young person um, and as an old person too, it's, uh, it's well to have an idea of budgeting, I think, in terms of your family expenses. You may do this more formally, you know, with, uh, on your computer, on a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. Or you may do it more informally where you just sort of have an idea about, well, I could spend about this much in various categories. And I would put various categories down in terms of a monthly plan, like uh, what, what approximately do our food expenses look like? What do our gas expenses look like? What does my rent look like? It's
0: very specific.
1: Right. What yeah. does my giving look like? Um. Uh, what else? What does my insurance is a big one. What does my insurance look like on a, a monthly basis, yeah. or on a prorated monthly basis? Uh, what does my uh, note for my automobile, let's say, look like in terms mm-hmm. of monthly payments? And you add all those up. Say, okay, this is about what we have. And, and this is what we have left over for miscellaneous expenditures that are not accounted for here and maybe yeah. a very small number, <laughs> maybe a, a bigger number. But I think that's important to have those kind of numbers in mind. Uh, my wife and I have been doing monthly budgeting for a long, long time. Y'all do it together? No, I, okay. I, I generally do the books. Okay, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, you've got the you've got the money. Well, for it, it. It, yeah, it depends on who wants to do it and who has the head for it. So mm-hmm. my, now my wife could do it, but it, uh, she just likes for me to do it. But in some uh, families, the the wife has a, a really good head for numbers and for math and stuff, and she does it, and then she, and she should do it because that's what she's better at. Mm-hmm. Maybe the husband's not, but somebody needs to do it. Yeah. And, and you need to be, you know, talking – you, you do need to be communicating about, well, how much do you need this month for this or does this look okay and so forth. And so you come up with some kind of an agreement, you know, about the monthly budget. But for young couples, I mean, if you're just going out and buying stuff that you want all the time, you're, <laughs> you're headed for big problems. Mm-hmm. And particularly with the use of credit cards. I mean, you, you can buy a lot of stuff on credit cards. But a lot of people get into trouble with credit card debt, and they have this big debt hanging over their head. Plus, they're pay, paying a very cool eighteen percent a year interest on that debt. Some people will never get out of it, they have a very tough struggle getting out of credit card debt.
0: Credit cards are interesting because they've they've got all these these perks that make you think like you're coming out on top. They've got all their you know their points and all of you know all of this you know really cool. I guess advertising, I don't know what it is, but it makes you think like you're the one in control. But when you drive by their their uh, their offices, they're huge. And so you think, where did that money come from?
1: Yeah. Whenever you go into the office of any company, be they doctors or accountants or whoever yeah. they are, if they've got a lot of uh, secretaries around and a lot of uh, well-dressed people and a lot of expensive furniture, you're in trouble already, <laughs> okay? Because they got to pay for that stuff. Yeah,
0: that came from somewhere.
1: It comes from somewhere. Yeah. Yeah man
0: okay so be intentional budget yes that's good that's good. Well that uh, that in itself is way more than I think a lot of people, uh, particularly my age do with money. It's uh, I mean with people who co- go to college you know it's their first time on their own they oftentimes don't have any experience uh, being intentional with their financial resources and they feel like they're not in control at all. So you're saying just sitting down with a budget
1: one time a month is a good way to begin to get control of that? It is, and in the old days, and some people still do this. I remember my mother and father used the envelope system. They dealt in cash only. So you have various envelopes, I mean, for food, for rent, for car, for whatever, and you have a certain number of cash money in each of those envelopes. And that cash has got to last you for a month in each of those categories. That's one way to do it. Uh, We don't use cash that much anymore, but we really need to try to keep a handle on credit card usage. That can really get us in
0: trouble. I read a really interesting study one time that if you use cash, because you're giving an object away in order to get an object back, your brain interprets it as sacrifice, and it actually activates the pain sensor In the brain, there's more hesitation involved. But if you use a a credit card, you give them the card, they give you what you're trading for, and then they give you the card back. So in your mind, you're thinking there's no loss, you know, no money was traded. um, And it's not not a a negotiation at all. It's just a win-win-win for you. And that's not really what's going on. Yeah,
1: I think there's something to that.
0: Yeah, there's no pain involved Mm -hmm. if you're using... A card. Yeah. So, I don't want to be too negative about it, but there's there's so much influence on our brains that we don't realize is going on from technology, uh, from marketing. It's just all over the
1: place. It's all over the place. It's it's hard for me to watch television. I mean, I do watch television, but it's hard for me to watch a show or something in television, particularly a movie. Because the amount of advertising is just unreal that happens during a movie. It's so Mm -hmm. discouraging. I can hardly stand to watch through it. Yeah. So this is the world we live in.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, if you've got time, I'd like to ask you one more thing. Um, Go ahead. So during your time as a professor, and I know this because I experienced it personally, you had a lot of guys come to your office for one-on-one, I guess you could say, discipleship or Bible teaching. Um, now, you told me one time how many young guys you had do this with you, and I don't remember what the number was. Do you remember how many? Uh,
1: Just I, over the years? Yeah, I, I, I don't. I, I mean, maybe 150, maybe 200. I yeah, don't
0: know. that's a lot of yeah. discipleship over the years. So, I mean, that's that's really interesting because I think I think a lot of people— a lot of people know that they want, to, they want to make a difference in people's lives during the mundane day-to-day work, but they don't really know how to do that. So how did you, how did you get started interacting
1: with young college guys in that way? Well, when I came back from uh, my stint with Campus Crusade for Christ, and particularly working in Latin America, and I took a job at Union— Um, And I did want to be useful uh, somehow in Christ's kingdom. But I really didn't know what to do here at Union because when I'd been in Latin America, I was doing a lot of evangelism. And I even street evangelism. I did some street. I did street evangelism. I mean, it's a, a very dynamic spiritual environment, you know. So when I came to Union, I was asking the Lord, well, I mean, what do you want me to do here? I said, do you want me to share the gospel with these young people? I said, they've heard the gospel 10,000 times. I mean, it seems like carrying coals to Newcastle, as the saying goes. uh, Why do that? So I was kind of miserable for a couple of years. And a local pastor in town helped me on that. His name was Nelson Hodges. He was a pastor at Evangelical Community Church at the time. We were talking about discipleship. He said, "Well, remember," he said, "they're not going to come to you. You have to go to them." Hmm. And I said, "Okay, well, that sounds right." So, really, I would just approach a young person who I, you know, it's just intuition, I guess, or discernment. Just, well, he, I think this person might have be interested. I would approach a young man and say, hey, would you be interested in reading Scripture with me for an hour a week and just talk, uh, talking about Scripture? Did you and get turned down a lot? Maybe once. Uh, it was Only almost, once? Uh, maybe once or twice. It wow. was. A, it was almost 100% yes. Out of 150 Out of, people? Uh, wow. Almost 100% okay. yes. Wow. And uh, plus, I, I tried to make it no pressure on the person. That yep. is, there's no homework, there's no study, there's yep. no reading, there's no nothing. Just show up at my office with your Bible in your backpack. That's all you need. And we would many times study the book of Romans together or something like that. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, so I would uh, ask a young man about this and say, yeah, sure, I'd love to. And Because people at Union, are they're either Christians or they have a lot of Christian orientation. Um, and... Uh, so that's something the Lord led me into for many years. I was able yeah. to do that. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, I know I personally benefited from it. Yeah. Um, wow, that's – I didn't expect you to say it almost 100%. Almost 100%. That's really interesting yeah. to me. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: That's, that's really cool. Well, as Campus Crusade used to say, the college years and universities are one of the most dynamic places to do evangelism and discipleship because young people are more open to talk. Well, they're there to learn. They're there to learn. Yeah. Their ideas are still being formed. If they're Christians, their theology is still being formed. Yeah. Uh, their worldview is still being formed. And they'll talk. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a very uh, dynamic place to talk to people about the faith or about growing in the faith and so on. So you said
0: normally you would go through the book of Romans. Yes. Um, why that particular book?
1: Well, that's my fa- one of my favorite books. Uh, it's probably the f- uh, first book I used with a guy in Bolivia who's the first guy I really did that with, a guy named Daniel Hurtado. We're still friends after all these years. Um, and we went through the Book of Romans together. I like Romans because there's a lot of doctrinal content in it. And most of the commentaries will say that this book contains the most complete apostolic teaching about the gospel okay, uh, in the New Testament. Okay. So, And I do feel that young people need to uh, become more doctrinally informed. That okay. is, okay, we believe in Jesus, yes, but do we believe anything else? I mean, do we know anything else? Uh, so I think Romans helps us. Yeah, that in that way to form uh, a better theological uh, understanding.
0: Yeah. Well, that kind of leads into my next question, which is, what do you think that young men need, just based on what you've seen? What are they hungry for? Well, I don't know what they're hungry for, but maybe I can talk about what they need. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So
1: those two might not be the same thing. (laughs) They might not be. (laughs) Okay. They need an idea of becoming men, okay. Which is, you need to think about vocation and job, okay. You need to think about getting married. Uh, now, I'd say young, many young men want that. They particularly want sex, whether they get married or not. But I would say uh, marriage is something that we desire. Uh, Men tend to be a little bit shy, I think, about uh, talking to women, particularly at union here. Why do you Uh, think that is? I don't know. know. Maybe they're nervous about the the, the vocational part of it and the the marriage part of it. The responsibility. The responsibility. The responsibility. And it is a responsibility. So we need to think about becoming men. Uh, yeah, to find, to find your place in the
0: workforce, to yes. find someone to settle down with, yes. that requires a level of intentionality.
1: Yes, exactly. So we need to become a little bit serious about that. Um, doctrinally, I would say young men and young women both need to come to a place where they know that Jesus rose from the dead in a real physical body. Um,
0: In other words, that part of the story is not taught as
1: much? It's taught implicitly, but it's not taught explicitly. Okay. So that we have a situation, like a professor reported from California who taught in kind of an evangelical university, that most of her students were from independent or non-denominational churches. And most of them did not have a clear idea about the resurrection of the body. Hmm. They thought the resurrection referred to a spiritual resurrection only, a spiritualized resurrection. The implicit idea then is, therefore, the body doesn't matter. So you can get into all kinds of sexual immorality here. And still be a Christian? Yeah. I, I think that's probably possible. But I, uh, the idea could be you can be a good Christian and engage in all kind of sexual immorality because the body doesn't matter. That is ancient first century Gnosticism. That is Gnosticism. The body is evil and it can't be redeemed. Therefore, the body doesn't matter. All that matters is my uh, whatever, my spiritual Relation with a spiritual Jesus, and that's it. But this is not right because Jesus rose from the dead in a real physical body, according to Luke 24.
0: So if Jesus rose in a physical body, that means Jesus cares about the body just as much as he cares about the spirit? Is that the, is well, that the I would, comparison?
1: I would Well, I would say that's right. He cares about the body because also of the doctrine of the resurrection, which is in the last day when Christ comes back, will be raised from the dead. Hmm. In bodies. Okay. And those that are alive at Christ's coming will meet him in the air, but they'll undergo a change first. The Apostle Paul says we'll be changed. Our bodies will become somehow a glorified body. just Not just a mist, not just a vapor, but a glorified body. Mm-hmm. So the body matters. Uh, therefore, purity matters. Morality matters. Doing good matters. Avoiding evil matters. Having pure speech matters, not cursing matters, all of these things matter. Yeah. It's difficult because certain parts of the Bible
0: make it sound like the point is to escape the flesh, as though
1: everything fleshly is bad or to be avoided. Well, it's very subtle, and this is where the book of Romans helps us, particularly in Romans 7 where Paul says the things that I want to do, I find I don't do. Mm-hmm. So I discovered that a law of sin dwells in me, in my flesh, the one who re- wishes to do good. It's very subtle, but there's a law of sin that dwells in me. It dwells in my flesh. But the flesh itself is not evil. It's this, this. It's a spiritual law of sin that somehow takes its abode in my flesh. I inherited that from Adam. And it's something that I have to deal with. And this is all about the process of sanctification here to try to do good and avoid evil. As St. Thomas Aquinas would say, that's the first principle of the natural law. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So young men need to know that what happens with their body
1: is important. They need to know what happens with their body is important. Um, uh, of course, for young men and older men too, the, uh, the plague of pornography is a, is a huge plague that afflicts our land. Uh, it's very difficult to get out of. It is a sanctification struggle, but I think young men should need to know that at least it's a struggle. It's not something we can just pass off and say, well, the body doesn't matter. Mhm. Did you have people open up to you about that
0: during your time of discipling all these young guys? Did that ever come up explicitly in conversation? Yes. Pornography. Yes, some. Yeah, uh, I I must say that I, you
1: know, didn't dwell on that a lot. Yeah. But Well,
0: the reason why I ask is it's it's something that people aren't really comfortable talking about that no. much, you know. They no, they're not. they know. They know in their heart. That it's something to be ashamed of, even though this culture says it's fine, it's fine. They know it's not. So yeah,
1: I agree. Yeah, uh, yeah, I would say we didn't dwell on it or anything like that. But I think it. This whole thing about the body, you know, uh, the body does matter. Yeah, and 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 God places His seal of approval on the human body through the incarnation of Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, the Son of God takes up flesh, as the theologians say. Therefore, God places his seal of approval. He says it's good because my son now is in body Mm -hmm. and my son is good. Therefore, the body of the son is good. We might say by analogy, I hope this is right. Our bodies are good, but it's the law of sin that dwells in my flesh that causes me a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so the
0: body is important. And how we treat our bodies are important. Um, There is no... If you want to be a Christian and a follower of Christ, you have to do it with your body just as much as
1: with your mind or with your spirit. Surely. And uh, uh, maybe we... I don't know what you call this. Maybe we need to get into a little bit of whole person theology here that that Christ died for the whole man. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's a little bit silly to think about being redeemed or to think about sanctification say, well, (laughs) well, Paul does say this. uh, With my mind, I serve the law of Christ. With my flesh, I serve the law of sin. He does say that. But it's a little bit silly to say that God is not concerned about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the apostle surely teaches this in Romans that, There is a process of sanctification that that we go through. In other words, God is conforming us to the image of Christ. Now, I mean, nobody's there. But there's certain disciplines. Young men need to know there's certain disciplines that we should engage in also, I would say. Like daily Bible reading and daily prayer is a good discipline to engage in. Yeah because it we touch base with the scripture and we we touch base with the holy spirit and it provides a different outlook on the day and and you can lose this outlook pretty fast i mean you go for some days without 30 reading 30 seconds scripture. later yeah, it's yeah gone. some days without reading scripture and some days without prayer and you yeah. can, you can be well yeah, uh, i don't know you can uh, you can be living a different kind of life.
0: Let's put it uh-huh. that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, Mr. Nagash, and yeah. he he has this thing where when he when he mentions prayer, he always says prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. He yeah. always says them like they go together, and that got me realizing that in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about prayer, fasting is usually there also. Prayer and fasting, they go together. So when we pray if we include fasting in our prayer we are engaging our spirit with god and our body is also a part of that process so fasting would be another one of those disciplines and every religion that i can think of insists on fasting and there's a reason for that is that it's it's a way to to include your body
1: in The spiritual experience. Well, I would say that's a very good point. Um, And I would say that people who do fast, I have noticed, tend to have more spiritual insight or more spiritual discernment. Hmm. Uh, I tend to be um, what I would call a Laodicean Christian. Uh, So I'm trying to be the best Laodicean Christian I can be. I'm a little weak on the fasting side of things. Laodiceans don't fast? Well, they're, they're all eating up with money and stuff, oh, okay. and excess, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that
0: seems to be a common thread across American Christianity.
1: Well, what else can one say, I mean, about yeah. American Christianity? If you read about the Laodicean church, I mean, where are we, you know? We say that we're rich, and we've increased with goods, and we have need of nothing, and... Hmm. Christ says, yeah, but you don't know that you're poor, blind, miserable, and naked. Yeah, yeah. So
0: fasting reminds us
1: what hunger is like. Reminds us what hunger is like, and it sharpens, it does sharpen our spiritual discernment. I mean, I, th- I think that is true. Hmm. Uh, I'm just saying I can't, I mean, I've done it some, but I can't report a lot from experience here. Sure, I mean, sure. I just, uh, I'm not, I'm. I'm just not a big on fasting. Sure. Although I sure. uh, I feel like it's great for people who are, are doing it. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. That,
0: that makes sense. Well, um anything else that you feel like young men particularly
1: need to have a part of their lives or need to know? Well, another thing theologically I think in our age and this applies not just to young men but to every, all of us. Uh, I think we do need to know that Jesus rose from the dead in a physical body. Mm-hmm. And I think we also need to know that the Old Testament speaks to us a lot about Christ mm. and that we need to see, we need to interpret the Old Testament Christologically like the church fathers did. I, I have kind of a thought puzzle here that if the church fathers use the kind of exegetical methods that we use a lot today, I'm not sure that the Christian faith could have survived. Wow. Um, basically, they were debating a lot with Jewish exegetes. And if you simply exegete the Old Testament historically, in terms of its historical uh, message and the audience to whom it was playing and so forth, You may come up with the same exegesis that Jewish rabbis come up with. I'm not sure the church fathers could have overcome that if they didn't have a Christological interpretation. By Christological interpretation, I mean seeing places in the Old Testament where we say this is that. Like Psalm 16, for instance, thou will not allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Yeah and so forth. And the church fathers would say, this is talking about Messiah. The Apostle Peter says that at the day of Pentecost. This is talking about Messiah, Hmm. that his flesh would not undergo decay when he was put into the tomb. And guess what? We're eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. So he fulfills that specifically in the Old Testament. I'm not sure we could have survived with modern exegetical methods on the Old Testament.
0: Well, I think a lot of I think a lot of Christians would agree that there are some places in the Old Testament that very clearly are prophesying about Jesus of Nazareth. Absolutely, particularly Isaiah fifty-three. Absolutely, places like the more well-known ones. It's very clear. But what you're saying is that it's it happens in a lot more places than
1: than people realize. I think so. I think it happens in a lot more places, and I, I think the whole tenor of the Old Testament is messianic. Aha. Uh-huh. In other words, the whole, if we can use this word, the whole program of God as he records it in the Old Testament is leading toward the birth of Messiah Hmm. uh, through the Virgin Mary and then his passion, his death and resurrection.
0: So it would not be wrong to interpret the entire Old Testament as
1: being about Jesus in one way or another. I don't think it's wrong. I think you'll see the church fathers doing that consistently yeah I think you'll see the Catholic Church doing that pretty consistently I think you'll see country preachers doing that pretty pretty consistently I think you'll see the more untrained pastors doing that pretty consistently It's when we get into very high level intellectual training more academic more much more academic training yeah that we tend to lose I think that Christological orientation. I'm not against academics. Sure. I'm not against scholars. Sure. My Bible teacher said, where do you think these guys are getting their sermons from? They're reading it from Bible scholars, Mm -hmm. which is true. But there's a, I don't know, there's just a certain intellectual tendency we have, I think, to lose that Christological orientation. Does that stem from um,
0: skepticism about the supernatural? Could be. Like, how how could something that happened 200 years ago prophesy about something that's going to happen 200
1: years later? Is that the idea? Uh, I think that could be part of it. So then all
0: you're left with is the historical...
1: All you're left with is historical uh, look, I think. But, uh, of course, this is... I mean, this this has to be a wrong orientation. I mean, if you're a Christian, by any sense of the word... It would seem to me that you must at least believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, and I would say if you read Luke 24, you'll see in a physical body.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, that's that's about as big of a miracle as uh, one could possibly imagine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what's the problem with uh, Jesus multiplying the, the, the bread and the fish or... Uh, or uh, Elijah striking the Jordan, and it dries up so he can walk over. I mean, if God can do a miracle of raising from the dead, what's the problem with some of these other miraculous events that are reported in the Old Testament? But Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, one thing that I've noticed through reading the Bible more and more is that it is the most hyperlinked book in history. Everything refers to everything else. Cross references are all over the place. And it's amazing how cohesive the entire thing is with multiple authors, multiple editors written over the span of entire centuries. And yet it all works together and it all points towards this one person in history that actually existed and things actually happened And uh, I just think that's remarkable that that the whole
1: thing fits together the way it does. Well, Martin Luther and others have called this the analogy of faith, which means one part of Scripture interprets the other part. The Old Testament interprets the new. The New Testament interprets the old. And I think this is what makes for good preaching and good Bible teaching also, where you can see these connections.
0: Hmm. Well, I think the thing about young men is particularly important. I mean, I say that as a young man myself. I think it's important uh, for us to learn from older and wiser people such as yourself what we need to be about. And thing, and that's things like personal responsibility and taking the sacred texts of our tradition seriously um, and and being intentional with not just with our minds in the academic world, but also with our bodies. All these things are extremely important for my generation.
1: Well, I think, yeah, that that's a good way to say it. I, I think we serve Christ with our minds and we serve Christ with our bodies. In fact, mm-hmm. this, doesn't the scripture say that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength? So we love God emotionally, which I'm still working on that, and but... I have a breakthrough every now and then. And with our minds, and that's, of course, we get into academics, we get into languages, we get into all of this kind of amazing work that we can do Mm -hmm. with Scripture, and we serve God with our bodies, which refers to purity of body, refers to sanctification, it refers to good works, doing good works uh, for others, uh, caring for the poor, visiting the sick visiting those in prison uh, whatever the range looks like there of good works uh, mm-hmm. are, is surely available to us to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you think um, you think these things are equally important for uh, young women today also or do you think that do you think that there are particular areas of weakness on both sides that are not always the
1: same? Oh, I, that's, I, I, that's a hard question. I Yeah, I would say it's surely equally important for young women, too. Um, I'm thinking in particular of the personal responsibility side. Well, surely. Um, well, just in terms of marriage, I mean, we marry uh, because we love each other and uh, and we want to be married. Uh, yeah. But when we take that step... Uh, uh, the young man needs to be responsible. He he can't just depend on his wife to earn the living for him all of his life. But sometimes that happens. Mm. And, um, I mean, there are cases where it, it seems that it's the best way in a term uh, possible. There are marriages in which the woman has a high-powered job and earns a lot of money. And where the husband maybe doesn't have a high power job and is not earning near as much, and it might make more sense for the husband to take care of the house, the home, all of those things, and the wife to go out and earn the living, that may make sense. I would say that seems not to be usual, but that, that certainly makes sense. Okay. Is that a legitimate Christian marriage? I would say yes. Uh, but however, within that... Um, We still have to be concerned about uh, purity. We have to be concerned about overcoming sin. I would say the husband has to be careful about uh, having uh, intimate conversations with other women. I would say that's probably a bad move. I would say the wife who's out in the workplace has to be careful about having intimate conversations with other men. I would say... That's a bad move. These things can lead to adultery. It's that intimacy and that emotional uh, attachment that I have for a woman that could lead me to commit adultery against my wife. And it surely works the same way for women. She can have an emotional attachment to another man, not her husband, and it can lead into adultery. The proof of that is check out the divorce rate. Doesn't look good. Doesn't look good. So somebody's not taking their marriage seriously. It's not so much that we're not taking our marriage vows seriously. We're not taking the problem of men and women seriously. We're not, okay. we're not taking that problem seriously. We don't see that there's a difference. Is the French say, vive la différence, No. <laughs> I mean, there's a difference between men and women. And women are looking to have their emotional needs met. Sometimes the husband doesn't meet it. That's, that's wrong on his part. Mm-hmm. They, look, they talk to another guy at work that's meeting their emotional needs. He's concerned about them emotionally. What kind of day are you having? How are you feeling? And she opens up to this guy. This is a, this is a bad scenario. And it works for men the same way. They, they talk to a woman at work that's interested in him as a human being. Wow, that's something new. Uh, wow, this woman's really interested in me. Um, that's a bad way station hmm. on the road toward adultery. I seem to recall. I'll tell p- you a story about my father. I okay. never knew this. Uh, I don't say this is normative. It's not normative for me. Okay. But this was my father. My brother told me this about a year ago. I never knew this about him. My father would never even shake hands with another woman. Wow. He would never touch another woman. He never shook hands. He said, I don't want them to get the wrong idea. Wow. This guy was on a path of sanctification that I'm not on. (laughs) But he understood the problem. Let's put it that way. He at least understood the problem.
0: Yeah. Well, this is all very good practical advice. Um, Any other final tips for young fathers, young husbands out there?
1: Love your wife and also see that marriage, there's more involved in marriage than just living in harmony together, producing children, raising a family. I mean, that is the marriage, but there's more involved, which is it's a representation and a testimony to the reality of Christ in the church. So whenever. Well for instance you. And Angela are married. And you're raising. A son. That is a testimony. To the world. That this is the way Christ is with the church. There's more involved in your marriage. Than just getting through it. Uh, you are bearing witness. And you're bearing testimony every day. With every breath you take, you're mm-hmm. bearing testimony to the reality of Christ and his church. So there's more in, in, at stake here than just my immediate happiness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's good. So that's my word for you. <laughs>
0: <Okay>. <laughs> well, thanks for all of this. Thanks for sitting well, thank. down with me and talking. Thanks I for really having me. I appreciate it.
1: It was a fun conversation. Yeah, today.
0: it was fun. We covered a lot of ground. You did. <laughs> all right. Signing out. Hey, everybody. If you'd like to help us with this podcast, there are several different ways you can do that. One is to leave us a review. Another is to click subscribe. Um, You can share any episodes you particularly enjoy on social media for new listeners to hear. And also check out the show notes for where you can follow us because we'll be posting updates as this experiment continues to grow. So thanks for listening.